Greetings, this is Kurt. This is a continuation of the third and largest portion of Book One, Enchanter's Lot. If this is your first visit to the Harkin Theater, we recommend you step back and find the first episode of Prelude, The Hostage Prince. Otherwise, make yourself comfortable as we continue the performances. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and share on your favorite platform. Comments and questions directed to our email will be answered promptly. If you care to be a preferred audience member and help in keeping these complex productions coming, please buy me a coffee via the website coffee.com listed with the description of each episode. And thank you for listening. Yeah, we are now on episode nine, and... Maestro, you're coming with us. What is that? The king wants to see you. Nine! We must start the music! Aye, tis episode nine. Open the gate! That's your total of the spine that was conducting orchestra. Deliver! What is going on? Step through the gateway and enter the universe of the Harkin Theater. This is Episode 9. The Harkin Theater presents the sound plays of A Bridge of Doom by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Book One, Part Three, Enchanter's Lot. Chapter Eleven. Dr. Brinth looked up from his paperwork and blinked absently at the young blonde woman standing there, his mind still calculating the differential factors of a tissue's molecular tally from the radiation lab. How did she get into my office without Louise calling me on the intercom? Dismissing the occurrence with a simple explanation, Secretary must have stepped away for a moment. He realized the young woman had just said something to him. Pardon me, miss, but I didn't hear you come in. She didn't look familiar, so she wasn't one of his students. Did you have an appointment? Her blue eyes sparkled as she smiled with mild amusement. I believe so. I was sent to help you. Dr. Brinth frowned at this, trying to remember if he or Louise had arranged for another work-study student. I'm rather in the middle of something here. Might you wait in the outer office for my secretary to help you? As the young woman stepped closer to the desk, he took in her appearance, finding her attractive and well-groomed, with alluring eyes that seemed to warm his insides when she looked at him. There's something out of place about her. Then it struck him. Though she was wearing a close-fitting dress that bore the crisp appearance of newness, she wasn't carrying a purse or wearing makeup or jewelry. All the same, she's beautiful. I was told to see you first, Maximilian. 
I beg your pardon? No one but his mother, his women in England, or his Oxford fellows ever addressed him by his Christian name. If she's work-study, I'll have to speak with her advisors concerning her impudence with titled faculty. Who sent you? Her eyes darkened from blue to lavender for an instant, all warmth suddenly absent. So Sokondra. Dropping the pen from where his fingers rested on the desktop, but not moving his eyes away from her, he leaned back into his quilted leather chair and rubbed his goatee thoughtfully, belying the agitation running rampant in his gut. He had put aside the powerful event of two nights past, not sure what he was going to do about it. Researching his occult and demonology books had served futile. Nothing written coming even close to a description of the drow, as he so called himself, named Sakandra. Still wanting to disbelieve the entire affair, despite the abrasions on his knees and elbows from being tossed about in his basement. If this is truth, then tell me what Sakandra wants us to do. Bring to him Paul Bach, heir to the Light Dynasty. He fumed at having to accept her and his unpleasant visitor of two nights past as genuine. He narrowed his gaze suspiciously at her. And what is your relationship with Sokandra? She shrugged carelessly, but with the eloquence of a well-practiced society dame. As a servant, nothing more. Shoving aside some of the stacked papers, she perched a shapely hip on the corner of his desk. And, as I understand it, he will not show himself again until you call him. Turning her head, she smiled again, the returning warmth in her now blue eyes more intense. Convenient. It's always such a bother having one's master interrupt when things are getting cozy. Master? He peered at her quizzically, then tried to scan her thoughts, but read nothing. <laughs> My, you are an interesting man. But don't waste your time trying to dominate me with your mind. She pursed her lips erotically at him. It won't work. Nonplussed by her apparent immunity to him, Maximilian could only sit and stare at her, finding his gaze drawn to where her white blouse opened teasingly on an ample cleavage. Not used to being distracted so easily, he shook himself loose from her bewitching aura and stood up from his chair, patting over his coat pockets for his cigarettes. So, how are you to help me? In any way you desire, Maximilian. He scowled at her, feeling like he had just stepped into a scene from a bad romance novel laced with the poorly written clichés of a sexually frustrated spinster. Worse, for the second time, he felt out of control of his immediate environment. He glanced at his wristwatch, remembering he was due at a lab session in less than 15 minutes. Unnerved by the young woman observing him with the sensual fire of a seductress, he walked around to the other end of his desk and grabbed his lab coat. I'll... what? He was trying to cut their budding acquaintance short and leave his office gracefully. But something told him... I'll not be rid of her any time soon. You've got me at a disadvantage. I'm rather good at that. And I have other appointments presently. Of course, darling. He tried not to let her easy familiarity bother him. One of the single women on the faculty tended to do that with him. She obviously interested in pursuit. 
one direction or the other. I'll chat with you later. Um, I don't believe I caught your name. Quirking a blonde eyebrow suggestively. My name depends. Depends on what? On whatever you want to call me. This stopped him amid his changing between coats. I don't think I understand. Just what sort of game is she playing? He finished shrugging into the white coat and located his cigarettes. He winced at her through the first puff of smoke. I really don't have time for this right now. Though he had discretionary privileges pertaining to his professorship, he disliked being late for lab sessions, especially when he had to check on his freezer cultures. Go on to your lab session, Maximilian. I'll be here when you're done. He stared at her with astonishment. How did she know what I was just thinking? But then she had laughed at him when he tried to read her mind. Now he knew what his childhood friends had felt like when he had probed their minds. Invaded. Right. For lack of anything else, he headed for the door. He turned to ask her where she had come from, but his office was empty. Moving his eyes back and forth, he sought some evidence that she had indeed been there, that he hadn't imagined it out of some repressed desire to have a student flirt with him. The only indication he could find was the papers she had moved in order to sit on his desk. He was reminded of the fictional visitations experienced by Ebenezer Scrooge. Though my own seems to have started out with the worst and are getting better. Shaking his head in silent perplexity, he headed out to the hallway, deciding that perhaps I should find out just who this Paul Bach is, if he even exists. I hate to think what a third visitation might bring. Chapter 12 The blood was still warm and sweet as he sucked it greedily from the rabbit's fresh carcass. A small sound nearby made him jump, and he spun about to scan the darkness. Smelling nothing but the leaves of the woods bordering the town and the rabbit in his hands, the were-rat returned to his small meal. Gunther had found his way to Hopetown, and had been dismayed at the village's growth over the last hundred riads. It had been so small, so easy to terrify back then, when he had first been infected with terpiscanthropy. But now, with its hundreds of people, a royal marshal, deputies patrolling the expanding maze of cobblestone streets, and oil lamps hanging from posts throughout the town, keeping it bright at night, Hopetown frightened him. So he moved along the town's boundary, sheltered by its stone wall, surveying its residents cautiously but keeping away from them, hiding deeper in the woods when necessary, and hatefully eyeing the distant flickering street lamps and people. The sooner he got back to the dark tunnels of the lost city with his prize, the safer he would feel. Tonight, the moon would be ripe and pregnant and make him thirst. If not for Hopetown's cursed lights at night, he might snatch a child or two from their beds, or take a woman from her garden like he did in the early days to ease his bloodthirst. But the prize he coveted was too valuable to risk 
on succumbing to his fleshly instincts. People were too many and too smart these days to ignore someone missing from their circles. And just a partial feeding on someone's blood would leave marks on their body, a convincing indicator of a were-being's presence. Hunters with dogs and charms and magic blades would come to try and kill him. Worse, he risked scaring his prey away. To satiate the hunger without risking discovery and confrontation, he had resolved to feeding on any small animals he could find in the area, including some farmer's dogs on the outskirts of the territory, afterward burying their ravaged remains to ward off any suspicions. He grinned eagerly to himself as he felt the rising heat in his loins. The sacrifice would not be for long, for with the full moon would come his prey, the half-elfin woman of that murdering enchanter. Soon he would smell her hot blood pulsing in her veins, feel her naked body move willingly beneath his, pulling him close, accepting him and his seed into her ripe womb. Soon she would belong to him for eternity, bearing his children, warming his nest. A mouse scampered along the ground, shifting a couple of newly fallen leaves, distracting Gunther from his daydream. He eyed it suspiciously, decided it was harmless, and settled back on his haunches as he tore into the dead rabbit's soft belly with his sharp teeth. The woodland game, though small, was plenty. Thus, he could afford to wait a few more days. Flaina placed another cool cloth on Gawan's forehead and pressed her wrist to his cheek. The fever broke this afternoon, but the illness's effect shows little change. After he had fallen unconscious two days earlier, Ablui had carried him to Flaina's bed above the tavern and examined him closely. She had not been able to decipher the strange gleam in the priest's eye as he had scrutinized the stricken enchanter. And when she had questioned his possible knowledge of the illness, he had said little except to advise her. Not to fetch a physician. She was to keep watch at Gawan's side until the fever passed. Ablui's powerful aura of confidence quelled her immediate fears, and she dutifully obeyed his instructions. Since that night, she had taken only a short time of sleep when Clough, Gan, or Thasgar had been there. Weary from her long vigil, she went to the chamber basin and splashed water onto her face, then went to gaze out the window at the bright night sky. The rising moon of mottled green and blue was full, with a dim halo sweeping through the stars bright enough to penetrate its gloom. Trees just beyond Hopetown's boundary rustled gently in the autumn breeze, as it wafted into the room and dried her face. She longed for Gawan's reassuring arm around her shoulders, his comforting whispers of devotion in her ear. Nearby, an owl conversed with a cricket. Memory of her younger days crept into her thoughts. Autumn nights when I escaped my bed to wander along the river's bank near the village. The strange urges, her elfin instincts, had always flared during the moons of falling leaves. She had found herself sleepless and full of a mysterious desire to explore the forests near home, shrouded by night's cloak. Once in a while, her father would discover her nightly treks and scold her harshly. 
worrying for my safety. Yet, her mother would beam a secret smile towards her daughter, always pleased when Flaina answered the call of her elfin ham. One time, when her husband was away on a hunting journey, she explained to Flaina that the allurement to the forest during autumn was a sign of the spiritual riad coming to a close and a new beginning, the energy of the moon's cycles completing themselves, something elves were naturally attuned to. Flaina had never really understood this at the time, but had embraced the sensation with renewed ecstasy each season, rejoicing in her elfin urges. One time, her ventures resulted in a torn chemise. Realizing it might have gotten damaged during her nighttime prowl, she had undressed and left it hanging on a bush. The thrill of running free and naked in the shadowed forest always evokes something magnificently beautiful and deep within my awareness. As I touch every plant, light upon every tree branch, sensing the thrumming life within each. Yet, when she went to fetch her nightshirt before returning home, she discovered she had left it on a briar bush, and the thin material had caught on many thorns. Her mother played accomplice by secretly repairing the chemise, so her father would not find out. The tavern's low hubbub floated upward past the window and interrupted her stroll through memory's eternal images. Flaina turned to see Gan hefting a wooden platter of meat rolls, vegetables, and two tankards of trisk. Ah, thank you. She went to help him remove I haven't eaten all day. The dwarf handed her the platter, rested the tankards on the floor, then reached out the doorway to grasp a pitcher of trisk left behind. Got to keep the throat wet. He gestured with the pitcher, making a small drop slosh to the floor. Oops. He glanced at it as if it was a lost child, then brightened at the full tankard waiting for him. <laughs> Flaina muffled a giggle at his unslakable <laughs> thirst and the sight of his small form hefting the large ceramic pitcher. <clears throat> At his mocking, scornful glare, she feigned innocence with a sip from her tankard as she sat in a chair next to the small table afforded the rooms of the inn. What's so funny? Your love of Trisk, of course. I likes how it tastes. You don't like hard Trisk? Nah, burns me tongue. Sides, I never liked seeing the tall men getting fallen down drunk from it, so I never bothered trying to. <laughs> he raised his tankard in salute. Well, don't worry about running out. If you need more, you can have some of mine. Yeah, no, you don't. Gon wagged a serious finger. You'll drink all that's there and more if we can wedge it. <laughs> I don't care how little you feel like eating. You shouldn't go all the day without something in your belly to burn. He eyed her sharply. I want you to eat all your meat roll and greens. Wouldn't do Gawan much good to wake up and find you in not much better shape. Goodness, Gon, you sound like my father. Suddenly chagrined at his short tirade, he lifted his tankard and peered at her from beneath his bushy eyebrows as he took a long draft. Wiping his mouth when he finished, he shoved a meatball at her on the platter. Sorry. Didn't mean to snap. It's all right, Gon. I don't mind. I've just never seen you so concerned. You're usually so quiet, except when you and Thasgar are together. 
He put down his tankard in a deliberate manner that warned her she was about to be gruffed at in his inimitable style. She waited with quiet happiness at receiving his complete attention. Young lady, after all the riads I have endured with villages of short people like myself and towns of greedy men like some I know here, I have learned the goodness of folks like yourselves. Round you I'm no little man or stumpy slave. Of course, if it weren't for Thasgar, I'd probably still be drawing maps for the dark holes the men around here call mines. I used to be pretty good at that. But I was still the little man, the boy, who happened to be lucky enough to get a surveyor's post. At least that's what they wanted me to think. He nodded with careful respect at her then clenched his fingers into a fist. Round you I am gone, a man, a warrior. So don't go to thinking I'd take being with you lightly. He stared into her hazel eyes. I likes me friends, and I'll do me best to take care of you. He finished with taking a big bite of his meal. <laughs> Flana considered the inner confidence God had just shared with her and... The true virtue of his gift to me and Gaynor. Thank you, and you can be sure the feeling is mutual. She decided it would be best to follow his lead and started eating. The bowl of steamed vegetables was still quite warm as she stirred it and took a sizable taste. Making herself comfortable at the little table opposite Gan, she tucked into her meal. He said little more, aside from satisfied grunts with the food, mm. stuffing his mouth and smacking occasionally with obvious enjoyment. Mm. Observing the amount the half-elf was consuming brought comment, finally. Ah, I thought you might put away some of the good cooking from downstairs. Looking up from her bowl to reply, she saw the utter shock on his face. He stared in disbelief at something behind her as he chewed his last mouthful quickly and forced it down. <coughs> me axe's edge. She turned around in her chair to see Gaywan sitting on the edge of the bed, scratching his scalp, and yawning as if he had just awakened from a pleasant nap. Taking in the sight of Flana and Gan staring at him, he smiled. Supper in the room? What a nice idea. Got any to spare? I'm mighty hungry. Gan jumped from his seat. Uh, I'll get the others. Flana left her chair and sat beside Gaylord in the bed, feeling his cheeks and brow. They seemed normal. Hello, love. The enchanter gazed about the room, noting the night sky outside the window. Have I overslept? What was Gon so excited about? She reached for her trisk and handed it to him. You've been sick with a high fever for the past two days. Don't you remember what happened? He froze, his eyes getting round as memory returned with a vengeance. My crystal. The sorcerer! She shook her head. Ablui said your work with the crystal had nothing to do with your illness, though he wouldn't say more. Thank the gods he didn't. If word had gotten out, I would have been tied to a stake and burned. What? Was he still delirious? You vomited a little and had a fever, Gaywan. No, no, you don't understand. He touched his chest. Remember how I got wounded? The wound has been healing nicely, if that's what you mean. No, love. He took her face in his hands and looked into her eyes. Do you remember?
remember how I got that wound. Tisha shifted form to a tiger and... A were-tiger! A were-tiger! Don't you see? Gods! How could I have overlooked that? What's all this? Looking pleased, Clough and Thasgar, with gone in tow, arrived. The fever was only part of the infection. The elf's smile faded to a look of concern when he saw Flaina's shocked expression. An infection? An infection? Gawain wagged his hands and reached for his boots. I, I must get to Trimble. Hold on, my friend. As I understand, Flaina and Ablui have taken good care of you. Where are you off to? I am wrought with disease. I must find an antidote before... Clutching his hand at his chest, he turned his eyes to the sky beyond the window where the haloed blue-green moon, full and bright, glowed silently back. Oh, no! Not here! Not now! Astonished, the elf watched Gawain's eyes change color rapidly from azure to a blazing ice blue. Shoving his friend away, the enchanter tried to stand from the bed, but his feet twisted, making him stumble, and he fell backward into Clough's arms. His body shifted and changed before the horrified stares of his companions, and becoming larger and longer, his skin sprouting fur, his clothes seeming to melt into his hide. In his place, a white tiger lifted its massive head and gazed into Clough's eyes. He rushed into the floor, twisted in place, and sprung with powerful limbs for the window. Thansgar rushed over and helped the elf to his feet. Crouching and balancing itself on the threshold, the large cat turned and looked forlornly at the four who watched. The room was motionless as everyone waited. Gaywan, don't! The blue eyes turned to her and, for a moment, as they darkened, the animal seemed to understand her. Suddenly, the feline expression revealed fear, its pupils dilating wide. In the next instant, it turned and leaked out the room. No! Don't go! The three men kept her from following him. Tears streamed down her cheeks. The tiger bounded down the street, a flash of silver and black under the flickering street lamps, then vanished into the night. Clough pulled Flaina close to keep her from chasing after Gawain's altar. She struggled fiercely for a moment, beating him with her fists, then just as quickly collapsed into small sobs of despair. He stroked her hair comfortingly, while Gan and Thasgar stared ominously out at the moonlit night. Trimble slammed another book shut and shoved it aside, his face lined with worry and long hours of concentration. Touching a finger to his lips, he scanned a stack of scrolls and books piled precariously next to his seat, his eyes lighting at sight of a particular one near the bottom. He leaned over, grasped it firmly, and pulled it out, causing the entire tower of paper-bound parchment scrolls and books to come toppling to the floor beside him. Ignoring the avalanche, he snatched open the hasp of the large book and perused it with anticipation gleaming in his fatigued countenance. Flaina, 
weary from the day of study through the numerous tomes and epistles, leaned back in her chair and watched the mage pour over numerous leaves. She had stopped reading when she realized... I'm not quite sure what it is we see. Curses of the dark. If only he had told me of the bite before he became ill. Meaning? All the cures known to us at this time are for the period after the infected bite and before the onset of the fever, which can take up to three quarters to develop. I see. She lowered her eyes, unable to mask her disappointment. She knew Trimble had done his best and didn't want to hurt his feelings. Besides, with Gaewon gone, of what use is a cure? Even Glink has disappeared. With him, the last possible hope that the Enchanter will return someday. I'm afraid I can offer no further help at this point. We have looked through every written word on anthropy. Most of the knowledge addresses the plague of werewolves and were-rats. And for this, the only cures for after the fever are... Um, he looked at his hands with obvious discomfort. To be honest, the cure is more for protecting those uninfected. He would have to be killed if he could be found. Flina jerked her head up and glared angrily at him. That's no cure, and I refuse to believe it's the only way to save him. There are factors these writings never touched upon. What of his powers as an enchanter? What of that... That damned crystal! She stopped, realizing she was venting her frustration more than any reasoned chain of thought. <sighs> what of me? I, I still love him, no matter what he's become. Now, now, don't snuff the flame yet. He reached over and patted her hands lightly. I was referring to werewolves. There's especially very little information about the Feliscanthropes or any other shape-changer. And you said he became a white tiger, which, as far as I've seen, is unique. I cannot discern the reasons for the discrepancies at the moment. He cogitated the facts read too quickly. Something about states of mind and strength of will. He would have to find that scroll and read it again. Most of this is theory and conjecture rather than fact. Religious cures designed to comfort potential victims. Now, based upon all this recorded history, legends, and yarns we have scoured, it would seem the best way to find out anything about werebeings is to converse with one. Despite her deepening depression, Flaina forced a wan smile at him. The distant clang of the crier's chime announced late afternoon. She had been at the Athenium with Trimble since just before dawn. Clough, Thazgar, and Gon have undertaken a discreet cursory search of the forest near town in an attempt to track the were-tiger. I hope they have better news. I'm sorry if all this effort has served to do no more than frustrate you, my dear. <sighs> That's all right, I suppose. I'm just tired of questions and no answers. Even after all these books. Ah, yes. And what a mess. He gazed upon the sprawling heap on the floor. Here, 
I'll help you clean up. She reached for the pile nearest to her chair. Oh, no, no, you run along, I'll do it. Besides, this is an excellent opportunity for my new assistant to start learning the inventory of the Athenium. Ah, uh, yes. She nodded, remembering the bright and cheerful half-elfin boy that had assisted them in fetching the books, then stood and stretched stiff muscles. Oh, thank you so much for your help, Trimble. Of course. This is why we are here. If you need me or my assistant, don't hesitate to come over, no matter the time of day or night. She grasped his hands briefly. Blessings upon thee. Thank you, my dear. But I believe it is Gawan who is blessed to have a dedicated consort such as you. Not knowing how to reply to his compliment, she reached out and hugged the old maid, surprising him somewhat. He returned the gesture tentatively, but warmly. Without another word, Flaina then found her way to the Athenium doors. Taking a deep sniff of the fresh air, the Athenium tended to smell a bit moldy at times. Flaina cleared the cobwebs out of her mind. Yet, no matter how hard she tried, she could not distract herself from the worries plaguing her. Where is Gabriel? Will I ever see him again? Will he remember anyone? Some of the worst cases mention the victims of the disease getting all ties with civilization and their loved ones. Tired of the fretting and frustrated with no solutions, she rubbed her hands over her face and decided she needed to do something to distract herself. If we Nothing she could do was going to change the facts or help the situation. So, so I should concentrate on taking care of myself for the moment. A pang of hunger offered purpose and, remembering God's admonishments, she headed down the street toward the Brass Dragon Tavern. In an effort to relax, she looked at the sky with its puffy white clouds, then glanced around into houses and shops, taking casual notice of the people and their wares. Suddenly, something stopped her cold. She stood, frowning in the middle of the street, and felt out her intuition, her skin tightening, raising bumps on her arms. Someone was watching her. Someone hungry and vindictive. Just as quick as it made itself known, the sensation faded like a fleeting shadow in the night. Despite the handful of people out in the streets around her, she felt exposed somehow and wished she had her bow handy. Resisting the urge to look around like a frightened rabbit, she moved on, veering out of the path of an approaching horse and wagon. The evening was not long off, and the cobblestone market was beginning to empty of its peddlers and traders. The half-elf made her way through the center of town, reaching the tavern on Hopetown's northeast boundary. Entering, she looked about for any sign of Clough, Thasgar, or Gan. mildly surprised to find the great room lacking its usual complement of patrons. Not wanting to wait in the solitude of her room, which also happened to be the last place she saw Gawan before his metamorphosis, she chose a small table in a corner of the tavern and sat down to ponder supper. 
Deciding that she really didn't like eating alone, she requested a mug of tea. The attendant was swift, and soon a steaming cup was placed before her. Stirring the brew with a sapstick to sweeten it, she observed the great room with mild interest as she unwound from the long hours in the Athenium. The benches around the bread and stew boards, and the many straight-back chairs clustered around the tables lining the wall, feeling of warmth and camaraderie. Even though most were empty, the crowd of wood furniture lent an air of company that eased her loneliness somewhat. Low fires burned in hearths at either end of the great room. Heat from one drifted up the stairs that emptied out before it, warming the upper floor, while the other one, open to both the kitchen and the great room, was used for roasting spits, sharing warmth and cooking smells. Presently, a pair of mutton joints were cooking, their droplets of fat sizzling quietly as they dropped into the flames beneath. The indirect sunlight of the approaching even sky filled the large glass-paned windows on the front wall. Being perceptive of human curiosity, the tavern's owner had placed as many tables and chairs as he could along the front wall to allow his customers to observe the comings and goings of the Northeast Road without having to get up and look out an open door. The trader across the road, Turbal, son of Boft, took advantage of this convenient arrangement by displaying his best wares on his veranda during the day in hopes that tavern patrons looking out the windows might visit his shop after drinking and supping. At the same time, the brass dragon displayed its own wares, making sure the brass goblets, how the tavern earned its name, polished steins, and serving crockery behind the bar, and lit by a row of hanging lamps above, were visible to those passing by on the street. Below the cups and bowls, the lamplight glowed on barrels of fresh trisk, hard trisk, honey wine, and ale. An iron kettle hung behind the extensive serving counter, holding meshed cloth full of spice and tea. Its brew was kept hot and fresh by continual refills of hot water from smaller kettles hanging over the second hearth. The Brass Dragon was revered as the best place to sup and drink. Its popularity reflected in the number of merchants seeking to provide the tavern with its foodstuffs. The tavern made its own trisk, ale, honey wine, and cooked its own meats and vegetables and stews, but its cheeses, herbed butters, teas, and such were supplied by the territory's cheese masters and farmers. The breads were prepared by a baker related to the tavern owner, his shop around a corner nearby. On cold mornings when a brisk wind was blowing, one could always smell the bread baking. A brass dragon tradition was the sizable breakfast roll, fresh from the bakery, left in a basket outside each guest room, something Flana and Gaywan enjoyed sharing each morning. Lately, he had purchased a small crock of fruit preserves to dollop onto the daily bread. Of course, this morning, the crock and the bread had been untouched. She shook her head, wanting to dispel the encroaching depression. 
and tried to find a distraction with a discussion currently being exchanged between a counter servant and a stocky customer who was leaning comfortably on the bar, a tankard in one hand. Flana became so engrossed in the conversation across the room about horse breeds and the best feed for each that she failed to notice the tall, flaxen-haired figure in his brown traveler's cloak enter the tavern and approach her table. She jumped slightly as he said, Up, Louis! I would have spoken with you this morning, but I was occupied. Not sure if she was angry with him or not, she sat back and crossed her arms as she gazed at him sternly. Where have you been? You took charge of the situation without a word of explanation, then you disappeared. I haven't seen you since before. She bit her lip with anguish, not ready to speak aloud of Gaewan's horrible transformation. What do you know? She wanted to yell her anger and frustration with the whole thing at somebody, and the priest seemed a good target. But suddenly she felt very tired. I knew nothing could be done when he fell stricken in Trimble's vault. And considering the nature of his disease, I knew it was best not to say anything until the fever was done. So you did know what was wrong? She placed her hands on both sides of the table and gripped it tightly, resisting the urge to beat on it, on him, enraged at his apparent insensitivity. Why didn't you tell us? Tell me! He shook his head slowly. So much to tell for so little hope. Once the fever has begun, nothing can be done to stop the disease from running its course. Sometimes a victim can work his way out of the fever without retaining the ability to shape change. Ability? You make it sound like a good thing that he's become a maddened beast. Damn you. She stared hard at him for a moment, then faltered as he regarded her kindly with his cloudy blue eyes. Even now. He covered her hands on the table's edge with his. You love Gawan more than you ever thought possible, despite the maddened beast you assume he has become. Feeling shamed at her harshness, she lifted a hand away from his and wiped the tears brimming in her eyes, then stared unhappily into her teeth. The one man who truly loved me who ignored the social curse of my mixed heritage is now an uncontrollable animal running somewhere out in the wilderness. What becomes of me now? I come to console you, Flana, but not in the manner one would over a funeral pyre. How do you, how do you mean? She lifted her sash to dry her face. I have tracked him most of the day. Gawan has gone far. But because his trail has been careful and not a maniacal wandering, I am almost certain of his recovery. What? She blinked at him as the full meaning of his words struck her. How can you track something as elusive as a tiger? And what sort of recovery? Ablui leaned forward, his broad bulk shadowing the table. Man can track man. Beast can stalk beast. Thus, a were-being can do both. Both? She was getting confused. He leaned back again. I am what a learned man would call an ursinthrope. 
Flaina dropped her sash as she realized he had just admitted to being one of the most feared of all shape changers, a werebear. Yet his gentleness belied any furious beast that might hide beneath his appearance. She crossed her arms again, unsure as to how to consider this man. If thou art a were-being, then how can thou beest a priest of the freethinkers? He smiled easily. Though a were-being is thought to be dark of mind and deed, I must correct what you have been taught to think. Most of us are exactly the same as before our transformation. The simple fact is that most people fear us because we are able to become a powerful animal in a few heartbeats. The first werebeasts, the wolves, would have been forgotten if the people of that day had realized on what their fear was based. It is only social dogma that has made us a hated species. Species? Flynn's blood chilled at the word. You're saying... Gaiwan is no longer a man? Of course he is a man. Now he is more than a man. <laughs> and you believe he has not gone mad? The apparent madness is natural for anyone who suddenly feels their entire body change so dramatically. Look at it from their point of view. Most are so shamed by their new form that they run away never to be seen by their loved ones again. Then Gaywan might My still... dear child, the pure in heart remain as such. This is why I became a priest, to prove this fact to myself. I became infected from a werebear's bite while a child. In the spirit of the pranks and games of boyish innocence, I had threatened her den of natural cubs she had born from mating with a common bear in the forests. I was purged from my village after my fever because they feared I would use my shape-changing ability to hurt others. Why didn't they just kill you? Were-beings are difficult to kill. We have a strange connection to the essence of life itself that prevents us from being harmed by anything other than silver or charmed weapons while in our altar forms. But, but they could have done so while you were- Could you push a blade through a child's chest? A small boy who had done no one harm. Besides, it was a small farming village. The men had nothing silver or charmed. They knew I couldn't help being what I was, so they decided to let me leave the village and survive on my own. If only they'd realized I retained my awareness while in my bare form, they might have decided otherwise. Even a lowly were-rat can be pure in heart if he was such before he changed. Remembering, Remembering Rolf and, and Gunther. But what about needing to drink blood? His expression fell solemn. That is the darkest facet of becoming a werebeing. The bestial urges are what drive a werebeing to seek fresh kills and warm blood. As a predator in the wild will feed on those creatures in its purview, so a werebeing seeks to feed on humans but only those of lesser intelligence. Those humans who are hardly more than animals in their treatment of others succumb to these urges. Thinking of the two weir rats in the lost city, she found this statement true. 
the shadow in his blue eyes eased. Remember the spiritual law, as above, so below, as within, so without. I wouldn't worry about the bloodthirst. Gaewan, from the little I saw of him, seems highly intelligent and of good morals. Flaina nodded eagerly, unable to keep from kindling a brighter flame of hope in her heart in the face of the unpleasant facts. Ablui sensed this and raised a finger warningly. However, the crystal and the sorcerer with which he struggled weakened him. Sometimes, if the infected person is weak of mind, the fever can affect their sanity, forcing them to become a complete wolf or bear or tiger without any trace of their humanity. There are too many factors to be certain of anything, especially where this enchanter of yours is concerned. Twas evening of the next day. Flana was sitting under a tree in the backyard of the tavern. The kitchen was busy with sounds of cooking while she played snatches of songs on her wooden flute. Leaning back against the small tree, she lowered her flute and listened to an owl call to its mate as she lazily surveyed the lamplit kitchen windows and the cloudy night sky. Her heart ached for Gaywan's company. Early autumn leaves wafted to the ground around her. It seemed many days had passed since her discussion with Ablui yesterday. Hello, gorgeous! A tall silhouette stepped around the tree upon which she was leaning. What you doing, my beauty? Flana blinked and widened her eyes, not able to make out the drunken voice until Clough sat next to her, the kitchen's lamplight reflecting faintly off his fair hair. Clough? She caught a whiff of ale on his breath as he grinned at her. I don't believe I've ever seen you like this. No? His grin faded as he looked at her curiously. Isn't it a little early to be drinking to keep warm? No. He kicked a twig. She frowned as she scrutinized his entire demeanor. You're not feeling yourself, are you? Not at all. He turned and breathed into her face as he placed an arm around her waist. She stiffened at his touch, not used to this change in him when he drank. And there was something else odd about him, something evasive. But you are obviously yourself. He outlined her body with his eyes. Which is fortunate when you're being foolish. She nudged him away. Don't you see, Flana? He ignored her gentle shove. It may be a little early to sup ale for a lonely fellow like me. And deliberately pulled her close. But it isn't too early for us. To what do you refer? She remained rigid to his advances. Come on, you half-blood. Isn't it obvious? Don't call me that. This seemed to strike him, and he withdrew to look at his feet. I'm sorry. His remorsefulness reminded her that he, too, was close to Gaewan, the two being love brothers. This would explain his drinking. If Clough was feeling disheartened because of what had happened to his friend, she wanted to commiserate with him, help him to feel the hope Ablui had invoked in her heart. She touched his arm lightly. Forgive me, please. I know how you feel about Gaewan. 
He shifted away with an uncharacteristic pout. You never did like me. Why, that's nonsense. I like you very much. Just as but... Gaywan... Gaywan is gone, isn't he? True, but he may... The elf turned his face to hers, a strange grin melting his sulk. And now that he's gone, we can be together. She shifted away from him and tried to stand up, but he grabbed her free hand and yanked her back down. Where are you going? I thought you said you liked me. He moved his face close to hers. I do like Clough, but if you are a part of him I haven't seen before, I may change my mind. Why? Did I hurt you? No, then but... Then what's wrong? Let go of my hand. No. He grabbed her other hand and squeezed both. Damn you, let go! She tugged futilely, <laughs> her grip unusually strong. Be quiet. Lovers should be left alone. Lovers? Release me! Oh! Clapping a hand over her mouth, he bent her fingers backward. Panicking, she tried to wrestle out of his grasp. He released her other hand and grabbed a bunch of her long hair. She twisted her head back and forth, fighting for breath, and kicked him. Come on, you passionate half-blood. I know you kept his loins warm. She jabbed her fists into his solar plexus, making him cough in shock and shock. Yanking hard on the hair he held, he let go of her mouth and wrapped that arm around her waist as he lay himself partially on top of her. The tension in her neck as he pulled harder on her hair forced her to stop and consider other action. That's it, my beauty. You want me. It's no use denying it. He continued squeezing her waist despite her sudden lack of resistance, her backbones beginning to pop from the pressure. At a lack for anything else to do, she slipped her dagger from its sheath wedged between them and cut across his arm. Surprised. He stopped squeezing her and peered dumbly at the gaping wound on his arm as if it were somehow detached from feeling. You hurt me. He ignored the fresh blood welling from the gash. I wouldn't hurt you. He let go of her hair, snatched her dagger hand, and tightened his grip around her wrist until she dropped the blade. Deciding on a new tack, she feigned submission, gambling on him getting careless. She quickly wished she hadn't used her dagger as he picked it up and pressed it to her throat. Confident that he now had her under his complete control, he shifted his body fully onto hers, forcing his legs between, moving his lips close to her ears. That's it, my beauty. Just relax. I only want to delve into your soft, sweet body and take that which is meant for me. You know you want me inside you. She hated lying there doing nothing, feeling his arousal pressing against her, but knew to wait for the right opening to act. A wrong move, and she might end up with her own dagger in her neck. He reached down to loosen the sash holding her breeches as he licked her cheek. I only want to put my babies in your belly. It dropped from the overhanging tree branches. They froze and stared at the intruder. A pair of ice-blue cat's eyes gleamed with fury, his white coloring lending him a ghostly aura. Clough released her and jumped to his feet, the dagger held defiantly before him, and circled away from Flame. 
muscles rippling along its limbs, the giant's cat moved warily toward him, bearing fangs. You sap! She's mine! You can't have her! Flaina stood with fists clenched. I belong to no one! Please, tell him you're mine! No! She whipped her loosened sash at him, hoping to distract him long enough to back away to safety. He lifted his free hand to deflect the stripped cloth. In that instant, the tiger leaped. The elf was slow in bringing up his weapon and was caught unprepared. The momentum of the pounce threw them both to the ground and they rolled in the dirt and leaves. Merciless, the angry feline sank claws deep into Fluff's chest. Flaina stared with utter disbelief at the tiger and its victim, too horrified to turn and run for safety. Satisfied, he moved off and back from the lifeless form. Flaina managed to find enough presence of mind to approach Clough slowly. By the dim illumination of the distant windows, she watched the fallen elf's form change shape, first long, thin, and covered with hair, a giant rat, then shifting to that of a young, fair-haired man, his pale eyes staring blankly at the sky. By the gods! Gunther? The cat stalked away. Game one? He stopped and turned to gaze at her, ice-blue eyes reflecting the distant lamplight. Where are you going? He glanced into the woods. Don't! Don't leave me! He seemed indecisive, nervously looking around the area. Please? Without another sound, the tiger bounded off into the forest in a vanishing blur of white on black. Watching helplessly, Flaina slumped to the ground next to Gunther's dead shell and covered her face with her hands. <laughs> A Bridge of Doom Part 3 Enchanter's Lot The sound plays of the novel were written, recorded, directed, mastered, and produced by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Copyright 2022 Character voices for Episode 9 are performed by Jim Marshall, Catherine Team, Jay Gilbert, Richard Hammer, Darcy Aridell Hotelling, and H, the Great and Powerful. The novel and its sequels, making up a quintology, so far at present, are available through Amazon.com, on Kindle Books, can be ordered at your favorite bookseller, or can be purchased directly and at best price with additional bonuses from the author by submitting a request to our email. Music for the Harkin Theater was composed and performed by Evan McDonald, Florian Serral, Francesco D'Andrea, Atlas Mason, High Street Music of London, and licensed by PremiumBeat.com. Additional music was composed and performed by the author. Public domain music performances are licensed under Lieber Lieber Creative Commons. More detailed music and performer credits can be requested from the Harkin Theater at yahoo.com. Sound effects and original foley provided by Cusp Studios and the BBC Library. This was recorded on location in the universe.